Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll return to finish Ephesians chapter 5. Tim had read the first half of this chapter, a little more than half, uh, earlier as our reading of the law in which Paul commanded the church to walk in light, to walk in purity, to walk in Christ. And now, in the second half of the chapter, he turns his attention more specifically to how one walks in light and in purity, particularly within marriage. So, Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 17 through 33. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. There are a few topics in the contemporary culture as urgent and as muddled as human sexuality. Our society is gravely wrong on so many areas, much to their destruction. And yet there are a few subjects the church is more afraid to address. Not without reason, the world hates our sexuality. I've often remarked, <clears throat> excuse me, on the five years that I have been here, I have seldom found a Cambridge neighbor who is bothered by conversations about the gospel or Jesus Christ. But they will eat me if I talk about sexual ethics. This is a hot topic, and often for us an embarrassing one. And yet, notice what the Apostle Paul connects sexuality and marriage to. Not the importance of physical health, though it is connected to that. Not the importance of bearing children, though it is connected to that. 
Perhaps unexpectedly and scandalously, Paul teaches us that sex and marriage is an important topic for the church and the world because it is a metaphor for salvation. It is an essential feature for the human race to know Christ and to know the love of Christ and his salvation. With this in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 5. Our sermon this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 5. As I mentioned, these things can be difficult for us to discuss or to hear. But Solomon is not shy. He will address this topic twice more before we leave his introductory chapters to wisdom. Out of the eight essential qualities that he says his son must have in order to be wise, three of them pertain to sexuality. This is an important topic to Solomon's son. So let us hear first what Solomon has to say about it. Proverbs chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 23. Here again, the word of the Lord. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable, you do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one, lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labor go to the house of a foreigner, and you mourn at last. When your flesh and your body are consumed and say, how I hated instruction, and my heart despised correction, I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own. Not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. And always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman? And be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. Amen. Amen. Swimming was always an important and very large part of my summer as a child. 
This was largely because our family farm provided ample opportunity. We had a full-size in-ground swimming pool, shallow end at the one end and deep end at the other, diving board, and in the middle, a slide. If that wasn't enough, we had a large oval pond with a dock in the middle from which you could jump off. You could go rowing and canoeing and boating, and there was a little cabin at the end in the woods looking out across the pond onto the fields. If that wasn't enough, we had a creek, a small river, with sweet, fresh, fast-flowing With trees overhanging, we could go out on the branches and jump out into the depths of the river. There was so much fun. There was, however, one place on the farm where water gathered, and there we never swam. You see, there was a a hillside that was three sides around, a little bowl. And at the bottom, all the rainwater would run off the hills and, and gather into a very large, oversized puddle. We called it a pond. It was really a giant year-round puddle. Thick green slime grew across the stagnant water. Muskrats loved to dive in it. Snakes and frogs and toads could be caught in it. All kinds of nasty creatures lived there. The heifers would go down and wade in it. And my parents would say, children, wherever you swim, don't swim there. And I remember thinking... Who on earth would ever swim there? And yet, the reality is that most of the American culture prefers to swim in sewers and cesspools than in the cleansed water of marriage. The reality is that sexual immorality is exceedingly attractive if it is also deadly. The reality is that we need some superior motivation than just our own welfare to keep us from indulging in our sensual and sexual and sinful desires. And so Solomon teaches his son in Proverbs chapter 5 that highest superlative desire. That marriage and sexuality were given to us in order to glorify and enjoy God. Specifically, by showing the world the love of Christ. You see, the gospel truth, the good news for us today, is that marriage shows us the love of Christ. Faithful and biblical sexuality shows us the love of Christ. So with Solomon, I beg you, keep yourselves pure. Let's think about this a little bit this morning. Proverbs chapter 5 Solomon begins in verses 1 and 2 and in 7 by telling his sons to pay attention. Listen up. Hear my words. This is the refrain that Solomon has given his son throughout all of these chapters. Again and again, he's calling out to his son, listen to me, hear me, pay attention to me. He again adds, pay attention specifically to my wisdom, my understanding, and the words of my mouth. In this way, Solomon calls us back to this main theme of what wisdom is. It is knowing God and God's will for our lives. You see, in order to be truly, fully human, we have to know the God in whose image we are made. We have to be shaped according to our knowledge of Him. So Solomon says to his son, 
pay careful attention to God. Know Him. Know who He is. Know what He has done. Know what He wants you to do. Pay attention. Lend your ear. Listen carefully to such teaching. Solomon gives his son a reason, a new reason to do this. He's given him many reasons already. This way you can live generously. This way you can walk steadily and diligently. This way you can listen attentively, learn and grow. But now in verse 2, he gives us this week's reason for paying close attention to God throughout our life. That you may preserve discretion. That your lips may keep knowledge. You see, the reality is, there are situations in life that make us stupid. You see, the truth is, we encounter temptations that make us lose our mind. We do not remain discreet and knowledgeable. We react with feelings. We react with thoughtlessness and carelessness. Solomon knows that his son is going to be exposed to opportunities to act without thinking, to doing that which is ultimately foolish. And so he says to his son, you must cultivate an attentiveness to God, a sensitivity to the work and the words of the divine. Beloved, surely you have already noted this. There are times in life where our brains just don't seem on, do they? And that which seems silly, foolish, expensive, we find attractive and appealing. The reality is feelings can overwhelm thoughts. The reality is deep appetites and desires can overpower common sense. And so Solomon says, the day that your humanity is powerless in the face of sin and temptation is the day you need a close relationship with God. You need His Holy Spirit to sovereignly restrain you. You need the love of Christ to sovereignly compel you. You need a Father to whom you can cry out, Help, I am overmatched. If this is completely alien to you, then simply take my word for it. I promise you, you will face temptations for which you are not sufficient. You will face sins for which you have not the strength to resist. And you need a close, attentive relationship with God to survive. Solomon then says to his son, here's an example. Here is a common and tragic example. Verses 3 through 6, he introduces his son to a woman, an immoral woman. He warns his son that her lips drip honey, her mouth is smoother than oil. That is, that her offers sound good. He says, my son, you are going to meet people who are going to make offers to you that are going to be attractive and desirable. You will long to do what they say. It will seem sweet like honey. It will seem smooth like oil. But in verses 4 through 6, Solomon teaches his son that it is a lie. It is deceptive. It is bitter as wormwood. It is sharp as a two-edged sword. She walks with her feet down into death. Her steps will lead you into the grave. Do not ponder her path of life. Because her path of life leads to death. 
not life. Her ways are unstable. You don't know them. Those who begin to flirt with sexual immorality find that the road disappears out from underneath them and they are swallowed up in the grave before they even knew it. It is an unstable path, unpredictable and unknowable. If you think that you are simply a master of your sins, that you can play with them, indulge them, and then put them aside whenever you want, you are sadly mistaken, Solomon says. Sins are not toys, and they are not stuffies. You cannot bring them into your life and then set them away whenever you don't want them. Sins are deadly monsters which long to consume and destroy. And so is this immoral woman. There are two things I want us to see about this phrase, an immoral woman. First, is by calling her an immoral woman, Solomon is simply pointing out the historical fact that he's addressing his son, who is a male, who is going to deal with immoral women. This passage is equally applicable to all the young and old ladies in the congregation. There are, I'm afraid, lots of immoral men, and they too are dangerous and deadly. Whether male or female, Solomon means for us to grasp this truth. That the offer of sexuality outside of marriage is an offer to live in the grave. That's what he is teaching his son. We see this in the phrase, an immoral woman. This uh, word that is being translated in the Hebrew is sometimes translated strange or unfamiliar. By that, we can think of the Hebrew concept of marriage. Adam knew his wife, and she got pregnant. That was clearly more than an intellectual awareness. There was a deep, intimate affection and knowledge of each other. This woman, however, is unknown. She is unfamiliar. She is strange. That is, she's not his wife. It is also sometimes translated that she is a foreign or forbidden woman. This, too, is the idea of one who is not in a covenant relationship with Solomon's son. Beloved, this is the truth Solomon lays for us. That sex outside of marriage is a dance with death. It is something that sounds sweet like honey, seems as smooth as oil, but is rather as bitter as poison, as sharp as a sword, and as certain as the grave. You do not know how to master the consequences of sexual immorality. My son, pay attention. Little children, listen to God. He is giving a good warning. He's saying, listen to me, look at me, do not go down that road. Do not follow her into death. Solomon then explains to his son that when he speaks of death, he doesn't just mean the once cataclysmic loss of life entering into the grave. No, sadly, it is often far worse. In verses 8 through 11, Solomon itemizes what he means by death. A kind of living death that sexual immorality introduces to the life of his son. He says, remove your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. This is the same metaphor in verses 5 and 6. 
Don't follow her feet. Don't walk on her path. Do not go through life in her company. Do not go near her house. Do not become a resident dweller. Do not make sexual immorality the way you live. Guard your eyes. Guard your mouths. Do not look. Do not casually and carelessly talk. Do not think. Keep your distance from sexual immorality. Solomon gives these reasons why. Five. Verse nine. Lest you give your honor to others. There is a death that comes to our dignity when we are sexually immoral. A loss of respect in the community. Those who are callous and careless with their sexuality do not achieve the respectability God calls us to. They insult their humanity and others so that the world of humans has no place for their privileges. Secondly, he says, your years go to the cruel one. We sadly see this. Sexual immorality is a kind of slavery. Those who give themselves to the gratifying of their flesh pass into the shackles and chains and years of bondage that come from simply gratifying the flesh. Thirdly, aliens are filled with your wealth. All that you hope to achieve, all that you hope to acquire, all that you build up, you squander. You spend for greater and greater and greater satisfaction that never comes. It costs more and more and more until poverty comes upon you. Your labors go to the house of a foreigner. All that you work for, all that you strive to do, it is wasted away on this foundation of sexual immorality. It collapses and passes into the hand of another. It does not stand up. It does not last and endure. And finally, in verse 11, your own flesh and body are consumed. There are truly diseases and physical, emotional, and mental destruction that comes for those who are casual with their sexuality. This is the hard teaching of Solomon for his son. He says there is a death that comes when we are careless with our sexuality. When we just go about satisfying our lusts as we want. We end up losing all of ourselves. We end up giving away everything we have sought to achieve. Everything we have sought to amass and acquire. By surveying life in this totality, Solomon is pressing the point upon his son. When you have sex, you give yourself. You pledge your existence to another person. It is not slight. It is not insignificant. It is not merely physical. It is mental, emotional. It is spiritual. It is rich with this vastness of meaning. I as a human being am uniting myself to you as a human being. And in this bond... Our lives are intertwined. And in this case, without the protective walls of marriage, lost. Solomon doesn't end there. If you're following with me, and if you're anywhere where I am, you're begging for this to end. But Solomon has one more brutal point. Verses 12 through 14 You will wake up one day and realize it was all avoidable. 
You will wake up one day and you will say, I hated instruction and my heart despised correction. All along this path, as I descended deeper and deeper into depravity, further enslaved to my sexual desires, throwing away all that my life was aimed to achieve, God whispered, stop, stop, stop. He gave me a society. He gave me family and friends and parents. They gave me instruction, correction. There was that really awkward sermon I had to sit through back in March of 2022. The warnings were there. And I didn't listen. I did not obey the voice of teachers. I did not hear the voice of instructors. There is a rebellion at the heart of persistent sexual sin. This is where Solomon ultimately draws his son to as a conclusion. You do not casually throw your life away in this great rampant abomination. You rebelliously resist the warnings of the world, of God and of the church, of family and of friends. And he concludes in verse 14, I was on the verge of total ruin. Living in the, in the midst of all this wreckage, in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. All around me were the voices of my elders, my deacons, my fellow members of the church who had said to me, put away this selfishness, put away this self-indulgence. My friends, if you have never heard this, I beg you, hear it now. If you are struggling with sexual temptation, talk. Talk to me. Talk to your elders, to your parents, to someone who loves Jesus and will help you love Jesus. It is a sin that is rooted in the core of our identity because it is a sin connected to the giving of ourselves one to another. This is the great theological foundation of our sexuality, that it is an act intended to make of two individuals one person, one flesh. That giving of self in such a way is surely a suicidal act when not done the way God designed it to be done. There is such harm and such damage embedded into it I beg you, hear the instruction, hear the correction, hear the counsel, hear the warning. Solomon has taken us painfully through this path that descends down, down, down into the darkness that is sexual immorality. Ready for some good news? Solomon then offers his son an alternative. This is so sweet in the context of all that we have just heard and endured. Solomon offers hope to his son. Marriage, but not just marriage. Marriage as a metaphor of salvation. He offers his son true hope, which is ultimately not a relationship with another human being, but a relationship with the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. Notice in verses 15 through 19, Solomon sets before his son the beauty of marriage. 15 through 20. 
But then in verses 21 through 23, he sets before his son the beauty of reality, the beauty of marriage and the beauty of reality. He says to his son, first of all, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets? Solomon brings in a metaphor of water in order to help his son grasp what is going on. He, what, he, I thought of doing this, actually. He effectively holds up a glass and says, this one came from the faucet. He holds up another glass and said, this one came from the puddle in Antrim Street out there underneath the tree. Which one do you want to drink? And we immediately grasp the point of his poem. There is cleanliness and health and purity in the one glass. There is sickness and death in the other. He says to his son, love your marriage. Drink water from your own cistern in your own well. Don't allow this desire to run abroad in the streets, streams of water in the streets. Don't drink from the mud puddles in the streets. No delight in the cleanliness and the holiness of your marriage. Not only is this a very fitting metaphor to describe marriage itself, but perhaps surprisingly to us who are untrained in this reading of Scripture, it is the exact metaphor that Jesus uses in John chapter 4 when he's standing with a woman at the well of Sychar who is guilty of sexual immorality. Five times she has played the immoral woman. Five times she has been unfamiliar, unfaithful. Five times. And Jesus says to her, if you knew who I was, you would say, let me drink from you. If you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you a cup of living water. She says, where's your well? Where's your bucket? And he says, right here. He is the living water. He is the well. This sexual purity to which we aim is not only what we need in order to have this great life based upon a happy marriage, whatever that may be in our minds. Far more richly, far more beautifully, far more eternally, it is this earthly metaphor of the heavenly reality that just as in marriage we give ourselves to one another far more wonderfully in faith, Christ gives himself to us. And the life that we pour out into one another in marriage is but a picture of the life that Christ pours out into us when we are united to him in faith. Let there be intimacy in marriage, that it might rightly reflect the sweet and wonderful intimacy of Christ in his church. Let there not be a place for strangers, but a close, affectionate bond for one another. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Solomon here switches his metaphor. He moves away from water to the animal that is often seen at water, the loving deer, the graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and be enraptured with her love. Solomon says to his son, love your marriage. Rejoice in one another. Husbands, love your wives. I mean it. Rejoice in them. Delight in them. You know those eyes that go roving around? Knock it off. Look at your wife and no one else. 
You know that mind that goes wandering around? Knock it off. Think of your wife. Rejoice in her. Delight in her. But of course it goes both ways. Wives, delight in your husbands. Let these be marriages in which life flows into life, in which we give to one another willingly. Notice the vision of Paul in Ephesians 5, imagined here in Solomon's poem and metaphor, that marriage is a mutual giving of one's life. Whether it is sex inside of marriage or sex outside of marriage, sex is a giving of oneself, one's life. The difference is that the confines of marriage heap together that mutual giving to amount to something far greater than what the original two parts were. He says of the wife, she is fruitful. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe with satisfying breasts. That is, she's a mom. When you give your love to one another in marriage, what do you end up with? It is not a universal rule, but we certainly have seen in our congregation that what we were a few years ago, a congregation of a bunch of young couples, has changed. We are now a congregation with a bunch of young families. Isn't that amazing? I can testify, as one who has stood in the room with six live births, there is nothing as amazing and mind-blowing and miraculous as the birth of a human. There is also simultaneously nothing as ordinary and everyday, because it's all how we got here. This is the beauty that is embedded in marriage. The enriching of our lives by the giving away of our lives. The building up of our worlds by the surrendering of our world to someone else. And this experience is given to us by the will and purpose of God that we might understand the gospel, that we might understand the nature of Jesus Christ and his love for us. And so Solomon concludes in verse 20, My son, what is it that you see in immoral women? Why would you embrace the arms of a seductress? Do you not have the comparison? There's the immoral woman and there's the wife. Here they are. The one will kill you and the other one will enrich your life. Seems like a straightforward question, doesn't it? Seems like we have truth that cuts through the fog, that clarifies the fiction. And when we hear the siren songs of this world, we do not need to stuff wax in our ears as did Odysseus and company. No, indeed. We need to stuff the word of God in our ears so that we know the truth, so that we can see what is true. So lastly, verses 21 through 23, that if you'll notice in your bulletins was something I realized a little too late, is something I actually wanted in this sermon. For the ways of man are before the eyes of God, and he ponders his path. As Solomon began saying to his son, pay attention to God, now Solomon ends, for God pays attention to you. His iniquities entrap the wicked man, he is caught in the cords of his sin, he dies For lack of instruction. The one who refused to listen to God. The one who will not hear the word of God. Rejoice in the word of God. Is the one who will find the natural and ordinary consequences of his own actions. 
The greatness of his own folly will lead him astray and destroy him. In this way, my friends, we come to this symmetry of human sexuality. To engage in sexual activity is to give yourself away. Hopefully that truth has been played out. When you give yourself to someone else in sex, you are giving yourself your life away. The difference is, when you do it without marriage, it all just scatters into the streets and evaporates like the puddle under the sun. And your life is gone and misspent. But when you give yourself away once to one person in a lifelong covenant of marriage, they reciprocate. And it becomes a beautiful earthly picture of how two are one and greater than the original two. It's funny math, isn't it? It's God's math. And it's beautiful math. Because it shows us the nature of Christ and the church. Because when Christ gave himself away, he didn't lose his life, did he? But he sure got a bride. This is the beauty and wisdom of purity. Keep yourself pure. Which is, of course, the sexual way to say... Keep yourself with Christ. Be attentive to him and the love God has for you in him. For when he gave his life for you, he took his life back and you with him. Beloved, marriage shows us the love of God in Christ. Keep yourselves pure. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for these sweet truths. We give you thanks, Father, for a clear and compelling picture of the consequences of sexual immorality. And we pray, Father, that you would forgive us of the looks and the thoughts and the words and the deeds which have defiled the seventh commandment. And forgive us, O God, for failing to see that beneath the breaking of the seventh commandment was always the breaking of the first Let us, like the Apostle Paul, learn to equate such covetousness with such idolatry, with such lustfulness, with hating our own God. O God, give us truly pure hearts, that in Christ we would love Him as the one head of this church, and that we would rejoice in Him. O God, give us now a grace in Christ abundantly, that we would indeed be rejoicing in Him, in living out of the fullness of His joy for us, walking in purity before Him. We ask these things in His name and for His glory. Amen.